The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. As he was nearing the age of 60, this would have been around 1509 or 1510, the artist Leonardo da Vinci began his great anatomical studies. He began to dissect and take apart human bodies and produce drawings from what he saw. And if you just go to Google and look for da Vinci anatomical drawings, you will see just what I mean. They are there in the hundreds and they are incredible things to see. And for the longest time, I had wanted to turn that into a poem to take what da Vinci did and to perhaps surmise the reasons that he did it and the circumstances of his own life that led him to that point, uh, just to try and express what it was that led someone to do what he did. If you imagine that he is, uh, not imagine, he is, he was the illegitimate, he was an illegitimate son, a fact which kept him out of certain opportunities and employment and education. And all of the other things that led him into becoming a painter. And then at the same time, the kind of painter that he was, how did that happen as well? What kind of mind did he have that allowed him to leave so many things unfinished. I think I've spoken here many times about the, there's one kind of artistic process that is about having an idea and completing it, and that's it. And the other one finds satisfaction in just sort of rummaging around a bit and seeing what is going on. What was it about someone with such artistic proficiency and technical brilliance as Leonardo da Vinci had he could have gone on painting, doing paintings for the rest of his life. He could have done many more of them than he actually did. But what was it that led him instead to fill hundreds and hundreds of notebook pages, not just with the details of the human bodies that he saw, but just of the, the effects of nature and the uh, engineering projects that he wanted to take off the ground, quite literally in the instance of trying to build a flying machine. And on top of that, what was it about someone who knew that he had, that not only was he limited in the professions and the education that he could take, but he also seems to have known that he was limited by these weird interests in this and these weird bents that he had. He didn't just want to be a painter. Um, he didn't just want to have a little academy of students around him copying what he was doing. And it wasn't enough for him either to just learn whatever, uh, whatever anatomy was expected of you to be able to reproduce a human body in a painting. Uh, the kind of thing Michelangelo would have been perfectly fine with doing. Uh, da Vinci had to go further than that. and. 
I wonder if, in the poem I'm about to read to you, you hear a bit of what I found and what I guessed. And on top of that is my old saw, as usual, how does Homer take out the garbage? What is, how can you describe the isolation that someone like da Vinci must have felt? I think that's probably the thing that attracted me to the subject uh, even more than what it was that da Vinci was doing. It was that the limitations that were put on anatomical studies sort of forced da Vinci to do this thing in hiding and in secret. And because of those limitations, no one had done what he was doing before him in such detail. So he was sort of double and triple and quadruple under these layers of interests and isolation that few people would have understood and few peop other people would have been interested in themselves and that few people probably would have even wanted to hear about. And so I hope that the poem you're about to listen to uh, is interesting in that way, in a very humane way. We have him talking, uh, saying at some point, I want to work miracles. He doesn't want to merely be technically proficient anymore. He wants to literally get to the depths of the human body to hold those depths in his hand and discover the <laughs> the origin of things. I mean, how do you how do you do that? And this is what I was trying to put into the poem: the great wonder, the great uh, amazement, the great overwhelming feeling, the great joy, the great sense of humanity that he felt, the great love he seems to have felt for these people whose bodies he ended up uh, taking apart and learning so much from. And I should say, before we hear the poem, that the only reason I'm recording this right now is because the poem is being simultaneously published in the first issue of a brand new literary magazine. And this magazine is called The Basilisk Tree. And it is edited by a wonderful poet, who is also a listener on this podcast, uh, named uh, Brian Helton. So for anyone who is interested in reading the poem and not just listening to it, but also getting a great deal more new poetry from other poets, click on the link in the post description and go check out the basilisk tree. And who knows, maybe even submit something of your own. Leonardo. Modesty is not for me, not with my bodies. Those who have seen my drawings are like men introduced to the light. They smile and say they would watch a dissection if they could. But in the moment of flesh, their eyes would shred to see a body on the slab, flayed and quartered and fearful to behold. Few have the desire, few the stomach, few the means, few the patience, few the ability to draw them with such rigor, and few whose only impediment 
is time. Only in me are all of these, and so I should be the one to spend my nights with the dead. Breathless among the breathless, comprehending shape and form, mechanics and construction and proportion. My eyes stunned at the true sight of our lucid unity, how we resemble the river or the forest or the mountain. The how of movement and the where of energy and the why of continued life or its undoing. Who else has even thought of such a thing? Who else could comprehend such nights? The only patrons for these drawings are the dead, and they cannot claim disappointment like the living at how they look or how I place the saints they ask for in odd landscapes, where cave and color and atmosphere matter as much to me as the holy body. There is no confraternity to reject my final work, no collection of the well-meaning to question my lack of symbols or suggest the pious story they would rather I tell. Here, in these rooms of huge silence, our bodies are their own theology, their own defense, their own solution. But what I have gained in freedom and curiosity, I have lost in all human companionship, laboring alone for what no one has asked for and upon what few would ever want. My friends here, the dead now, and the living to come. To make a beginning in this work is to assume there will be no end, and know that such knowledge will never satisfy. The gesture of Thomas's hand into the sight of Christ hints at this. His eyes open to the reality of flesh, even beyond resurrection, and his eyes asking why God should choose a body not once, but twice. For no one digging in the earth or building to the sky can go as far in their life as I do with one body in a day, turning it or myself to see it from every direction, my fingers and hands covered in eyes as I dip them into the community of viscera and arteries, nerves and tendons, muscles and bones and blood a mass of architecture and precision, of density and lightness, of the brittle and the soft and the slippery, all contained in the same kind of body I use to bend over and peer and touch, as if trying to comprehend the sun. How many heads has it taken to draw this skull and draw it just so. How many headless bodies must I beg pardon of? And if I could hold them by the hair, glazed and preserved, and their face facing mine, or commune with the weight of their gourd in my lap like some bloody prophet, all as if I hadn't had to destroy them in the making of my drawings, so many heads cleaved or shorn or quartered, hemisphered, or with the crown lifted off like a lid. This, the upper room or closet of our bodies, walled with a pinkish contrast of nerves and jelly, 
the brain our garret and seat of life, leading to eyes and nose and mouth, to ears and curving spine. If I could do this, more as magician than scientist, more seer than draughtsman, more necromancer than merely curious as to the basic engineering which I believe begins here, and if I could project light and sight from the eyes again, would they approve of this intervening view of the skull that I have made, axis or geometric center, suddenly found in the head they simply held atop their neck. And when I have filled a page with a section's skull, the right side whole but the left shaved back, and terraced from teeth to brow to show each further depth, and when I have added beside such skulls sketches of single teeth, and when I have scrawled in my haphazard way other notes in my own mirrored script, I hold the skull and hold it closer. I hold the skull and rehearse the labor of reducing it to this final state of severed and skinned and scraped and come into my hands and out of my eyes and finally drawn. And I hold the skull and wonder why it is that the skull holds me so in its sway. Why do I go to it and find life here rather than among the living who would comprehend nothing of this trade, this work, this curiosity that to me is so essential? And why does it still seem to live? And why will the face it once held never leave my mind? Why? Can I not forget their bones any less than the look of their face when deceased or just ill and near death and with these plans in my mind? And why do I occupy a silent room in the night for their sake, if not my own? And to what end this gruesome brilliance that I shudder and swell to comprehend God as much here as in the understanding of rivers or flight, and that the lifeless skull shudders too and assents and seems to nod, its own eyes straining to see such a familiar but miraculous exposure. I would prefer death to inactivity and would prefer even more activity with the dead. Some of my details are guesses. Some of the angles and aspects of my drawings are no doubt not only inaccurate but impossible. But the weight of my achievement is its ability to withstand the corrections that will maintain rather than demolish what I've built. Even my errors will hold others in awe. Even what I've taken from earlier anatomists and can't yet suggest an alternative for, will light the way more deeply than the merely accurate and the never daring. You will see from my youthful, unfinished St. Jerome, posed as he is in a penitent crouch in his usual wilderness, how my real theme is ever the neck and shoulder and arms.
support and measure and movement, fascination with rotation and force, the bend and the stretch. And you will see the same from my studies of nature, to comprehend the breathing lungs of ocean, the skeleton of rock and mountain, the veins of rivers, and the entirety of it all in the rooted tree. And have you seen our distant likeness beneath the paw of the bear, or under the skin of the pig or the monkey, or the place of learning that is a horse's complete skeleton? What is nature? What is animal life? And what else in the chain of being rhymes, or nearly does, with our own basic form? By now I know totality is impossible. I know that even an already selective view needs to be further isolated and exploded onto ten more pages. I know that if the entire body is one coil, our depths are only more of them, coils within coils, the most complex details alive in a fingernail's space, just as the simplest part is mirrored in the sudden apprehension of the vast whole. For obvious reasons, I have not gone to our beginnings. I have wintered with many brains and summered with thoughts of all the hearts I have held, but a human fetus has always been far from me, although I have seen our form miscarried or otherwise, and have taken my eyes and tools to it. The vast process of the placenta, the beating and kick within the womb and the swelling, all things my pen and ink cannot touch, and which have eluded me, though I have guessed and I have tried. I would never distract the newest born or its mother with my obsessions. I would never disturb the nursing or the nursed, fascinated and amused and confounded and in love as they both are with each other. Let the living live without the preoccupations of a ghoul forever following. I was trained for painting and took to it so well that I rarely do it at all. There's no need. My teacher gave it up altogether when he saw an angel I made in youth, but I knew all the tricks even then and was storing up what I would need in old age. I learned to draw only with a pen and quickly, repeatedly, to strengthen the real work which takes place almost entirely in the head. And I preferred to fill sheets of expensive paper with drawings rather than empty my years into a painting that would cost me more in time and in memory. I found so much more while concentrating on a soiled wall or staring into the patterns of a stone some rock the world walks past. When I was at work on my last supper, and when to many I wasted whole days staring at the wall while changing nothing, I also wandered Milan, looking for the appropriate face for each apostle, as well as our Lord. And I ended up sketching quite a population, many men and many a demeanor, 
many noses and foreheads and chins, many cheeks and wrinkles and curious looks. Local men at the market, who never guessed they were under my pen, since I brought the means to sketch them swiftly. In the past, I went to the public bath to memorize the nudes, or I strolled the hospitals or brothels, as much as the markets and the taverns, or I followed the unusual body or face all day from a distance to see how he or she moved or settled, smiled or grimaced or stood or turned. And while I love beauty, I don't mean what is taken to be beautiful, a thing one can tire of, but the real beauty, that is, accuracy, tempered with rigor, and somehow filled with rhythm. This is why Giotto still lives, not because we copy him, but because he copied nothing but what he saw, because he was discovered drawing sheep on a rock, and we insult him to trace his frescoes with humorless reverence rather than look out our own windows. In Florence, I found the old man aged beyond a century and sitting upright in the Spedale di Santa Maria Nova, his voice a clarity of decades, and his body a monument to age. Voice and body, both still so capable, but lacking that important strength. And so he died of nothing more than weakness, and here, I had spoken with him, here, his hand had taken mine and now I was peeling it back and wondering at the cause of so sweet a death, indeed so sweet a long life, that somehow tended from the start to end with me beside him, taking him apart. Alberti was the one who said that to portray the body truthfully, one must begin with the bones and branch out, clothing them slowly with sinew, muscle, and skin that care for the body and curiosity in its workings were required for even the most incidental of figures, but Alberti never met this old man, and with him I saw it wasn't art that I was doing, and despite my reverence for Galen and Aristotle and Avicenna, it is not science either. It is immense intimacy to ask how the bones are bound together how the muscles and tendons give movement to the bones, to the tips of fingers, how the nerves bring sensation and the arteries nourishment, and how the whole is enclosed in such total reactive and pliant skin. And then so why have I left out how our flesh is also built for the touch of others? Why is the question of human physical warmth only in a side. Some of my pages are covered in faces, the same face over and over, like a star held in the mind in perpetual rotation. Head on from the back, below or either side, halved like a fruit, or with every detail overlapping, or inside and out, concurrently, as if I look with impossible eyes.
At some point, the motive of symmetry will give way to the evidence of those eyes. At some point, every outward mirror, the tree of the heart, the branches of vessels, the vortex of uterus akin to every spiraling braid, or everything within that recalls the sunflower seed or the pine cone, all spiritual parts, all of it will fall away in the face of the deceased. And at some point, the view of us as buildings or grammar or numbers or maps will dissipate. At some point, I will refuse to distort what I see, refuse to harmonize it with art or abstraction, with measurements or mathematics, and I will forget the grid. It's the old view to take the measurement of our limbs and add or divide them with the rest of the body's numbers so as to finally see it as a thing of comprehensible wholeness. But peel back such numbers and apply them to the simplest worldly act, and all I can do is dumbly draw. I have said before that many of us do not deserve the magnificence of our bodies and their mechanisms. I have said that the act of sex is sometimes so repulsive and the parts employed that our extinction is only saved by the beauty of our bodies otherwise. I have said that most of us are mere channels for food who offer no other purpose than the filling of latrines. And in my life, I have taken after Pythagoras and Plato in refusing to eat meat, refusing to be a tomb for animals. But my work with bodies has freed me from so much malice because there is a mystery about our purpose, because from the start my own painted Christ child was a chubby one, an earthy, hungry human being who chose to take on these joys and imperfections, and that his last acts were at supper and in a garden, among dinner and the ground, and peering now into a body that I may well have condemned as lazy when alive, I paused to see that God made such a life as likely as any, and a life like mine almost never. While my grandfather and uncle raised me, I could walk to the growing house of my father's new wife, and did so as often as I could as a boy, from Vinci to Camposepi. And those hills were what I first loved, the life of the earth on that long walk, the plants, the animals, the contemplation, the language of weather, growth, and light. There is the memory of a cave out of the way, one that I was astounded existed at all, and how I bent to look in and only saw darkness, only fear and desire. And there is an earlier memory where a kite alighted on my cradle, and with its tail it opened my mouth and swept the inside of my lips with its feathers. I think of that cave and that kite when I glance over the dozen drawn hearts that crowd one of my pages like friends. They have been my friends. So, while it's true 
that as a bastard, any career of consequence was closed to me. And while it's true that my being barred from the guilds and universities has filled me with the shame of all that I lack in languages and culture, the kite and that cave and these hearts are the center of my gift, if I have one. And it's also in these bodies, in every indication of their lived lives, dirt still on the hands or the stomach or in the eyes. And sometimes when I finished with one, I go to their head and I open their eyes and I wipe the tears that I find there. I hold the hand as I rarely have in life with no fascination now, but only with the tenderness of something shared. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.